Here's a question for you. Why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? So we've been asking just ordinary questions, right? Who was Jesus? What did he come to do? Did he come just to fix religion? Because it seemed like that was the content of most of his teaching and all. Um, well, there's more than that. Because then we discovered that he actually came purposing to die. And so we asked a question, um, why would God need a body? I mean, why would God, who's immortal, need to become mortal? And we traveled through that, and why did God have to actually die? And what happened when Jesus died? And then just to finish the story, we should ask the question, and what about being raised from the dead? Was that important? I mean, from what all we've said, um, he came to deal with the corruption, right? So that's the word we introduced from our friend Athanasius from way, way, way back, that we weren't just sinful, we were full of sin, we were absolutely corrupt. It wasn't just that we should stop doing the things that we were doing and do better. Um, we had a problem that was far deeper than that. And so Jesus came as a mortal to be God in mortal flesh to deal in the flesh with our corruption. And that was done. So why would he not then just go home to the Father and have done with it? Why did he have to be raised from the dead? So I'm going to give you two or three minutes and invite you to talk about that with the people sitting nearby. Why was the resurrection important? Why did Jesus have to be raised from the dead? Did that add something to what happened by his coming and his living and dying? What do you think? So take a few minutes. It's, I see talking going on, and usually what happens is there's two minutes of talking related to the question, and then other stuff gets talked about. So when I see you starting to laugh and giggle, then I think you've gone on to other stuff. So back to the question. What did the resurrection add to the drama of the coming of God in mortal flesh? Why was that necessary? Why was anything beyond the dying necessary? Who has an answer to that? Or do you think I've changed the question in the meantime? Yes, well, here's an answer. Good. Hi, everybody. I'm Miriam. I don't know if you know Janet that comes often and, and her uh, son, Andrew. Anyway, I'm Janet's cousin, so I've been around just a little bit lately. Um, I think he had to come back to life to show that we, if when we die, we'll have eternal life. So it was proof of eternal life, and it gave us hope and faith. Very good. Thank you. Some other thoughts? Not that those weren't very good ones. They were. What was added to the whole deal by the resurrection? Are you saying, well, that's what we came here to find out. Why don't you just tell us, right? What was added? Say again? Death was conquered. So death now was actually conquered. All right, not just the corruption was dealt with, but that we have a verdict. Death is conquered. Any other thoughts? All right. <clears throat> so here's where we've been. Um, we live in a day when people have dispensed with the church for you know, the most part. Um, they're, they're not so sure anymore about the things that they think we believe. And sometimes we're not very sure either about the things we think we believe. 
So we've, we've tried to sort of go back to the beginning and ask the question, if, if we had never known about Jesus, um, if we hadn't been sort of socialized in church, growing up in a church like this, um, what would we think about the first news about this person, Jesus Christ, in history? Because we, we now have 2,000 years of layering on just the simple person of Jesus. So if we were to pull back the layers and what we've done and what we've taught and what we've believed and just come to the question, well, who was this person, Jesus, and why did he come? First thing is that we know for sure he did come. Um, we have some great eyewitness testimony about his life. So that's a super place to start because when you're a person with questions about life and its meaning, it's good to know that there's a starting point that's pretty solid. Um, so we have great authentic witnesses to the life of Jesus. So we know what they saw him do, we know what they heard him say. And so we listened to two of them, um, to two of his friends, and the one told us several things that Jesus said that began with I am. And against the background of a very complicated Jewish religion, um, Jesus told ordinary stories and said our relationship with God, a religious life, a spiritual life is more simple than you've been taught. It's like this. And he says, I am. And by those various things, he begins to sort of dismantle uh, the religion around him. Then we listen to stories that he told, and one particular set of those stories. And in those stories, we, we began to hear Jesus introduce God in a different way to the way that he was thought about by those that were all around Jesus in the religious um, life of Israel. And so at the end of it all, we ask, well then, thinking that we have pulled back all the layers and we've met Jesus, is it enough to say that he came to renovate religion, to teach people how to be better religious people, to teach them to be better moral and ethical people? Because that was a lot, and he certainly brought that. But then we get into this whole question of his death, and we actually, from these eyewitnesses, we hear testimony that he said he came to die and that he intended to die. So he didn't come just to fix religion or to teach us how to live. Um, he came for more reasons than that. And so we, we were asking then for the last several weeks, well, what were those reasons? I mean, why did God have to become mortal? And then in his becoming mortal, um, why did he have to die? And why was his death a different death? Why was his death something that accomplished something? So we get into the whole question of sin and corruption and the fact that we have a singular rotting problem as humankind, and it is sin. But, but sin is not just what we do. It's so much deeper than that. It's, it's a disease that we have. We are infected by sin. And the end of that is not just paying for sin, being sorry for it, and saying we'll try not to do it anymore. The answer for that has to be a deep-rooted sort of eking out of the disease of sin, the corruption of sin. And we've been saying that it was necessary for God to become immortal so that he could take on the vehicle in which the corruption had occurred, and he could fix the corruption. He could dig it out, and only could it be done by God in the person of a mortal. And in the mortal life of Jesus... God began to recreate the world. So we had a, a quote um, last week that I'll return to that um, just sort of 
brings us deep into the, the realities of what, what God was trying to do and what he did. The book is Jesus and the Undoing of Adam by a guy called Baxter Kruger. He says this, The disaster of Adam's sin, the chaos and misery, were met with an immediate and stout and intolerable, intolerable divine no. I did not create you to perish. I did not create you to live in such appalling pain and brokenness and destitution. I created you for life, to share in my life and my glory, to participate in the fullness and joy, the fellowship and goodness and wholeness that I share with my son and spirit, and I will have it no other way. It will be so. So when God saw the condition we were in, it didn't surprise him. It was known to him before he created anything or anyone. And when God was met with our corruption, he said, no, I'm, I'm not going to put up with that. I will not tolerate my creation being left in corruption and left on a journey again to non-existence, to death. The journey that Satan dearly wants us to join him on. And God met that with a no. I won't have it. And so we have this glorious truth of the love of God. That the answer to the question, why did God become human? Why did God die? Why anything is God loved the world so much. He's overwhelmed by his love for us. And he is driven to redeem us, to bring us back to himself. And so the next part of the story of how God did that was the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul, not long after the life of Jesus, reflects on it like this. He says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death. Right? So it wasn't just the dying. It was death. The dying is the sinning. The dying is the, the, the disruption, the um, disrepair, the falling into, you know, Worse states always than moving up into better states. All of that was the dying, but it was the death under all of that that Jesus came to deal with. And it was because of the first Adam that death reigns. And so it took a second Adam to come to deal with death. And so Paul says, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And then there's a little part in there about the order of things, um, who gets raised first and all that. And then he says, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Now, um, it's interesting that... Um, Paul uses this language um, about us falling asleep. So um, we ask the question, well, is, is he just using a euphemism? So he's talking at the start about um, those who are asleep. He means the people who are dead. So why doesn't he just say dead? He, he, he chooses the word asleep because it is a truer word for what happens to us than the word die. And we, we just need to let that settle deep into us. It is more true to say that a follower of Jesus has fallen asleep than that a follower of Jesus has died. Because death is that realm of the undoing of everything good, that realm of the undoing of the purposes of God. And we're not part of that anymore. So when we cease existing, 
it is more true to say that we've fallen asleep than it is to say we have died. Now, have we not died? Yes, we have, right? So um, there's no breath. Um, the body is still. We certainly have died. But what has happened to us is that we have fallen asleep. So Paul says, when you, when you try to get a, a good look at the people that you used to know who were living with you and near you, they are people who have fallen asleep. And they are part of an order of things in which death is conquered and resurrection visits those who are gods as God recreates and redestines his whole creation. So Satan is on his time-bound journey to bring life into death, to bring existence into non-existence, to bring everything into the black hole that is him. And God has said, no. I won't have it. I will not let you take my creation like that and put it in a black hole. I will not take, allow you to take life and let it transpire into death. So Paul says, by the resurrection of Christ, um, we have a pattern of things that are going to happen. So um, here's the order that resurrection will happen. And then he says that in Christ we'll all be made alive. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So what's going on in our world um, from God's side of the fence, from God's viewpoint? Um, we all have conversations where we're fundamentally asking the question, what is wrong with us? And, you know, it, it's, it's only a naive person who says there's nothing wrong with us. We're all good, right? It's, it's a Hollywood star person behind, you know, the security of his fence and with his dollars and, and all the rest who says there's nothing wrong. The rest of us look around the world and we say, something's really wrong here, right? It's the emperor has no clothes on, while the rest of the empire are just carrying on business as usual. Here's the emperor, isn't he glorious? Don't you love his new clothes? And a kid says, he's got no clothes on. Well, there are some people who are saying, we have no clothes on. There's something fundamentally, glaringly wrong. What is it? And to boot, we, we sometimes implicate God in it or our notions of God. So while we look around and say, yeah, something is messed up, we also say, so God, why don't you fix that? And I, I kind of get a sense of God looking back at us and saying, you want me to fix that? You fix it. Who broke it? You broke it. You fix it, right? But I'm not like God, and God is not like me. So even when we say that, God says, oh, I wish you could understand that I have fixed it. I have radically changed everything so that death no longer is in charge. You are no longer destined to your undoing because of what I have done by coming in mortal flesh as my son and dying for you. I was raised from the dead in the person of my son to begin a pattern that shows the triumph of the work of my son on the cross. Because on the cross he dealt with death, he then showed us that he had dealt with death by storming out of death. He stayed dead long enough that nobody was going to say, oh, he wasn't really dead. He was. But he came back soon enough that nobody had forgotten that he just died two, three days ago. He stormed out of death. And it was sort of the final chapter of the story of God's coming. 
where Jesus came and abolished death and then stormed out of death to say, see, if, you're, if you come with me, I will lead you out of death and into life. That's why I have come. But the language here in 1 Corinthians 15 is really interesting. Um, it says that he, he hands the kingdom over to the God and Father, to his, his God, his Father. What kingdom is he handing over to the Father? So remember, we, we saw last week that in, in the back room of heaven, some things were talked about that we're now given a glimpse into. And Satan didn't get what was talked about in the actual back room. So we've been talking about the magic of C.S. Lewis. So magic is the way things work. And we've talked about um, a deep magic, a, a magic that is how the world works as a system. And Satan knows that magic. He knows that, that sort of deep magic. But Aslan says, if, he had, if the witch or Satan had been able to go back before time into eternity, she would have known that there was a magic deeper still, that if a willing victim would give his life and, and so on. So in that magic deeper still, back room of heaven, God, in the person of his Son and Spirit, knew what was going to transpire and decided how they would defeat um, the tyranny of Satan, who would try to bring us back into non-existence, who would try to take us out of life and into death. And so Jesus is said, by what he has done, to now have the prerogative of giving the kingdom to his father. Who had the kingdom? Well, the devil had the kingdom. So when we saw last week about Job and what was going on in heaven, what they were talking about, and then we came over to the New Testament and thought about Jesus and when he was tempted, and when Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, if you will bow down to me, I'll give them to you. And Jesus didn't say to him, you have no right to offer them to me. They're not yours. They apparently were his to do with what he wished. And only by what Jesus came to do did Jesus take it back. So in the deal in heaven that was not as far back as the Trinity's deal, there was this understanding that if such a treachery occurred, that Satan would claim this creation, and he did. And he didn't know what Jesus came to do, and he was baffled and finally vanquished by what Jesus came to do, given what Jesus and the Father had decided from long before the foundation of the earth. So in this process now, we're told that Jesus gives the kingdom back to the Father. Then the language he uses, there are three words that are, that are bundled here. And the three same words are bundled several times in the New Testament. And they are the words rule, authority, and power. So we're told that by that time, Jesus will have abolished. It, it means to just nullify. It means to make it useless, worthless, non-existent. So there is something that is called rule, authority, and power that is going to be abolished, and Jesus will then therefore give the kingdom to the Father. So what are those three words? The three words are, as I say, bundled often, and they have to do with, first of all, sort of a position, um, a lofty position, and then they have to do with the rights and privileges of that position. And then the last one, power, is the operation of those rights and privileges because of that position. So we're told that Jesus has to demolish those three things, those three levels. He has to demolish a rank. He has to demolish a prerogative. 
and he has to demolish the power. And that is what he's doing by his death and burial and resurrection. And he's taking back the kingdom as he does this work. So coming back to this whole question about what's wrong with us, sometimes I think we have a kind of a pathetic notion of what's wrong with us, that even as followers of Christ, we, we sort of feel like, you know, most people just don't get this. And if people did get it, if we followed the way of Jesus, the world would be entirely changed, be entirely different. And that's going back to the, the rather deficient view of atonement that comes in the modern church where it's basically you, you do bad things. And the great news is that now you don't have to give a sacrifice because there's been a final sacrifice and it's okay. You're forgiven. But the truth is that in beneath our having been forgiven and being forgiven is still the rottenness, is still the corruption. And we can impose as much as we like the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer in the town square, and this world will not be changed because this world is corrupt. It is rotten to the core. And what Jesus is doing now is he's systematically demolishing all of the reason, all of the spiritual authorities that are fueling that rottenness. I mean, why does society go the way it does? I mean, why do certain trends happen? What, what's the me too thing from, right? Is, is it just about, okay, guys have taken opportunity they shouldn't have taken and they have abused women. So they should stop that. Don't you want to get under that and say, well, why? Why does that happen? What is wrong with us, right? Guys, what is wrong with us that this is what we do? What is wrong with us that we revert to power and violence? Why do we do that? So it's not just stop doing that, but ask the question, why? Well, because we are spiritually charged. We don't live in a spiritually neutral environment. There are demonic beings, there are spirit beings, who are identified in this rank and prerogative and power system of things. These things are empowered by darkness. They're empowered by the enemy because they are part of his death toll and dying. And Jesus is demolishing those things. So he didn't come with a simplistic approach to sacrifice to be the best and final one. He came to wage war on everything that is fueling the corruption that is us. That's what he came to do. And that's what he continues to do. And resurrection will be the final victory of that having been done. When he returns um, and life will then reign, he will have handed the kingdom to the Father. Um, because there's this order of things in heaven, and the Father acknowledged the Son and gave him the name that's above every name, so he exalted him. And then, true to the form of the humility of God, at the end of time, the Son gives the kingdom back to the Father. And then God is God in all, and there's a sort of a reunion in, in the Trinity, in the fellowship of, of the Godhead. And then Paul says, and here, here's just the footnote, the last enemy to be abolished is death. And that when, when death is abolished, it'll be done. So when Jesus returns, it will be to establish a kingdom in which there will be no more dying because of the death of us 
has been dealt with by the death of Jesus and proven by his resurrection. That is really good news. It's really good news that we know what's wrong with us and that something's been done about it. In the meantime, we bear witness to that. We live into it. But we know that finally when Jesus returns, the second advent will be his coming, death, the final enemy, having finally been demolished. That is really good news. We may fall asleep in the meantime, but when we wake up, it'll be to an existence where there's no more death, no more dying. That is good news. We are going to talk about this for one more Sunday, and then we're going to talk about heaven. So for season of Advent, we're going to have a teaching series called Spaceship Heaven. I'm going to propose that heaven is kind of like a spaceship. It's heresy, I know, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. And then after that, in the new year, um, we're, we're going to just get into, so what is it that God wants long term? Because I think there's something there that is absolutely beautiful, that the reason God said no to Satan's tyranny is that he still wants what he always wanted, which is us. And do you know why he wants us? It's not because he needs us. Do you know that? That God does not need us. We don't fulfill something in God. He, he, he didn't sit in heaven forever wondering what would make heaven better. Out of his nature, he created us, and he created us to have his life. And Jesus hints at that. He, he, when he prays, he says, Father, I want them to see the glory that I had with you. And I'm looking forward to when it's me and you and you and me and us and them and them and us. And you go, what? What is that? So wh- what is it going to be like when God gets what he wants? This has been our asking the question, why did Jesus come? What is it that, that God wanted to do? So now we have a better sense of that. But what's it going to be like? I mean, what will we do forever and ever that will be the participation of God's life for us? Because that's, that's our hope. So we're going to talk for a little while about what heaven is and what heaven isn't. Heaven is not a place that we go um, by which we say farewell to good old earth. Um, heaven is a place that we go to wait, and then it comes back with us and changes all this. And that's what I'm excited about, is the new heaven and the new earth. When there's no more tyranny, there's no more dying, because there's no more death, because God has gotten what he wanted. No, he said, I will not let you take my creation and send it back into non-existence and death and blackness. I will not let it happen. 